So last week we were looking more specifically at secular authority. The, the hope was last week we'd get through both of these lessons, but of course just kind of turned into a longer discussion than I expected. That'll probably happen several times, I have a feeling, throughout the rest of this. Initially I was thinking four-week kind of lesson, of course, on this, and then we'd switch to something else. Obviously we're going to go a fair bit past four weeks. But that's okay. Um, this time, we're going to start with just a very quick review of what we covered last week, just to keep it fresh in our mind. And then we're going to look at the other side of this whole two kinds of authority that God uses to work in the world. The spiritual authority, what we could also call the, uh, the kingdom of heaven or the church. But um, let's just quickly review the secular part. Remember, there were a few basic things we could lay out very clearly from Scripture, summarized nicely in Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, that, of course, the source of secular authority is God. All authority comes from Him. Now, what's really distinctive about the secular from the spiritual is the goal, the means, and the scope. The goal of secular authority, like uh, we talked about, is imposing external order making sure that people are relatively decent towards each other and curbing uh, really bad behavior towards one another so that society, life together, can function at some minimal, tolerable level in this sinful, broken world. So it has this preserving capacity in God's plan. It helps maintain the order. We also talked a little bit about God uses it to also fight against this Satan and the ways he likes to disrupt the world. But the tools, the means it uses to get this job done are by creating institutions, laws, kinds of ways of ordering society, and then enforcing them, what's called the sword. It has the power to not just say, this is what we should do, but compel you by various means to do this. And this isn't them taking that authority to compel you on themselves arbitrarily. Like Paul says, they bear the sword as though God himself has given them the agency, the power, the right to compel good behavior and compel you not to do bad behavior. We talked a little bit about that like with speeding tickets. If I keep doing it, not only will they force me to pay a fine, but if I refuse to pay the fine, eventually they will literally physically put me in a cell. And there's nothing I can do about it. I'm not strong enough to fight off. I don't know how many police they'd like to send at me. And the scope we saw, of course, everybody in some sense is under secular authority, but particularly they're, uh, the area of authority that they're trying to maintain is the second table of the law. Those regulations that God has for our interhuman relationships very clearly spelled out in the 4th through 10th commandments. Now, that's not to say every government says this is the second table of the 10 commandments and that's why we're enforcing it. It's more that the way God designs the world, those commandments are just the way he hardwired creation and human nature to function. Uh, most societies, whether they were Christian or not, <laughs> have enacted laws and rules strikingly similar to the second table of the law. Why? Well, good reason for that is because God is the one who created this world. God is the one who created all human beings to function certain ways. 
So it's not surprising that they all find that humans tend to work better together when they follow these patterns that God himself has hardwired both in the way we work and in our own hearts to a certain degree. It's darkened by sin, it's corrupted by sin, but by and large, that's how we're meant to function and that's the way God authorizes governments to compel us to function in some respect. Any questions you want to talk about with that before we sort of leave that behind for the time being and move over to spiritual authority? All right, well, I'll just say one quick word of clarification that I have here on the... Uh, the sheets that I passed out. It's not to say that they rigorously enforce to the letter the Christian interpretation of the second table of the law. It's to say that uh, they reasonably are there to protect some tolerable level of adherence to those norms and standards. Uh, again, if the government exceeds its authority or neglects to do those kinds of things, Let's say it just doesn't care if people go around murdering each other because it's too busy trying to exact taxes from people and it likes the payoffs that crooks are giving it. Obviously, it's breaking down in some pretty fundamental ways. And we are, so to speak, free not to submit to those unjust laws that clearly go against what God's second table says. But what does that mean on the ground? For instance, let's take up that topic we talked about very briefly uh, or not so briefly, a couple times ago, with homosexual marriage. Christians would say very directly, and you don't just have to be a Christian, by the way, to make an argument like this. Homosexuality doesn't seem to be reinforcing it as a marriage, doesn't seem to be good for human relationships in a whole lot of senses. It's just destructive to the very nature of the family, the relationship to parent and child, and all kinds of other things. It just creates lots of problems for society. You don't have to be a Christian to make that argument. But Christians obviously have those arguments to make. Now, if your society has said, nonetheless, we're going to go ahead and allow for and enforce um, allowance for homosexual marriage, what do we do? How, what does it even mean to say we're free not to submit? Well, in a very real sense, you have to understand <coughs> there's a difference between what we are being compelled to do and what we have to tolerate around us. Let's just pretend they'll try to compel you to enter a homosexual union. In that case, you're free not to submit. You're free to simply say, you don't have the authority to do that. That's You're contradicting what God has sent you to do, and you're certainly contradicting my principles that God has given me as a Christian. So I am going to ignore you, disobey you, and bear whatever consequences you decide to try to throw at me. But of course, that's trying to compel you personally. There's a big difference between that and allowing the government allowing other people who are not you to enter into this sort of situation. Uh, in that case, there is certainly we have to uh, tolerate those things happening around us. That is to say, we can't go around to them and compel them not to get married, right? We can't go to somebody and literally bust up the court and say, no, this is not happening. We're going to force you not to do this. It's just beyond the possibility of what we're capable of, and it's outside of our authority anyway. Christians were just not able to compel people in that way. And by the way, we're not just talking homosexual marriage. We could also talk about the way divorce laws now work, which frankly are rather against the grain of the universe and against most of how societies have worked in the past. But point being, we have to tolerate it to a certain degree. We don't allow it to be compelled among us, but can't exactly force other people to act that way, and we can't force the government to enact laws and regulations that follow our beliefs 
and our, whether they're uh, Christian beliefs or more generally secular philosophical beliefs. But we can urge society to change the way that it's operating through the levers that are open to us. Does that make sense? So there's a very real sense where, true, we don't personally have to submit to the government where the government is doing unjust things, but that doesn't mean we can't force others not to submit to them. And to a certain extent, we just have to tolerate what we recognize is a breach of the secular government's authority and the scope of their authority. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? All right, we'll have plenty of time to talk about secular authority later, so let's just leave that behind for the time being and jump to uh, the other side of this, the spiritual authority, which we'll see very quickly is a very different kind of thing. It just operates at a completely different level for completely different purposes. Now, obviously, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this fact that the source of spiritual authority, what is it? Who, where does it come from? Right, it comes from God. It does not come from pastors, it doesn't come from priests, it doesn't come from popes or prophets. It comes from God. And if you want a, a nice uh, summary of that, in fact, it's worth turning to this for other reasons too. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28, um, verses 18 to 20. Now, by the way, when we're to go into these verses, just like with the talk about the secular authority, I'm not saying these are the proof texts for what I'm about to say. Like, these are the only texts in the Bible that talk this way, and our whole case rests or falls on these. These are just handy summaries of what Scripture teaches across the board on these things. Now, most of you will uh, find this familiar. Does somebody want to read for us uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20? And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All right. So, first of all, who is the one with all the authority in heaven and on earth? God, Jesus specifically says Ah, all of it has been given to me. So the, the whole, whether we're talking spiritual, secular, or any other kind of authority, ultimately it all rests in Christ's hands. So that's, I don't think anyone's going to have any trouble swallowing that one. But this verse is also handy because it also starts to bring us into a lot of these other aspects. Because what's the goal of the <laughs> authority that Jesus then authorizes his disciples to carry out. You might say very literally here, Jesus is authorizing with his authority the disciples to go out and do something in his name, on his behalf. And what is it they're trying to accomplish, according to these verses, in verse 19? Disciples of all nations. Exactly. They're supposed to go and make disciples. Uh, what we mean here, if we want to get uh, down to the ground here, is Christians make people who will also believe in Christ, specifically who, he as Christ talks about throughout the Gospels, who will recognize him as the son of the living God and the savior from sin, will trust in him as the one God has sent to bring them to forgiveness, to give them the Holy Spirit, so that they can be reconciled with God and have peace with God and ultimately eternal life. So that's what we're talking about here when we're talking uh, making disciples. Kind of like we mentioned a couple weeks ago more briefly, the goal of the spiritual authority is to bring people to repent, 
to bring them to be forgiven in, through faith in Christ, to renew them through the Holy Spirit, and ultimately to give them everlasting life. Repentance, forgiveness, faith, renewal, life eternal. Those are the goals of Christ's, what he authorizes the disciples to do by saying, go and make disciples. Right away, he even mentions two big things about how they are supposed to go and make disciples. Uh, Sarah already mentioned one of those. Baptizing, for one big thing. How do you make disciples? You go and you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we can cite all kinds of uh, scripture verses to make this point. By the way, this is in distinction from a lot of Protestant types of Christians who do not believe that baptism is a way that you actually make disciples in the sense of bring them to faith, bring them to the Spirit, bring them to eternal life. Because a lot of them think that baptize, being baptized is all about you just making a confession that you already are a disciple. Baptizing doesn't make you a disciple. It's something that you do because you're a disciple as an external confession of your faith. Baptists, um, a whole lot of the uh, evangelical big mega churches, they're all in that kind of category. But when Jesus is saying this, we can just point to what he means is this is actually a tool by which you exercise the authority of the kingdom on someone else and make them a citizen of that kingdom, that you bring them toward the goal. For instance, uh, Romans chapter 6, where Paul writes that uh, as many of you have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. You were therefore buried by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, you too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There again, tying baptism right away to forgiveness, faith, and life in Christ. We could go to Acts chapter 2, where Peter is uh, talking to the people on the day of Pentecost, where after they realize they've sinned and killed Christ, um, they say, what can we do to be saved? And Peter tells them, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit right away. He connects baptism to all of those. Uh, you get the Holy Spirit through baptism. Uh, baptism is, an, is something that follows after repentance um, in, those, in that particular case, and what it gives you is forgiveness, the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 3. Um, baptism now saves you, says, writes Peter. I could go on and on with these, but the point is clear. Baptism is a way that Christ actually exercises and asserts his authority over you by asserting the forgiveness of your sins. When you're baptized, the triune God is saying, I am forgiving you, you are my child. What else is that except an exercise of authority by God that works these things? There you are then. Baptism, big one. What other thing besides baptism is mentioned here in Matthew 28 as a way of making disciples? Teaching. All right. Teaching. We'll call it preaching the word of God. I'm going to expand on there a little or clarify a little what uh, <laughs> Jesus is saying by reference to things like Romans 10, where Paul writes that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That you can only come to believe in Christ if somebody has preached you the message of Christ and his word. 
So part, a big part of the way that we, this authority happens is we actually hear the word of God by which he speaks about us and makes claims over us. And by the way, it's important to note, this word of God is not just the good news you're forgiven. It includes both the law and the gospel. We can talk about that in a little more uh, with reference, for instance, to the last chapter of Luke. Uh, somebody actually just want to turn really quickly to Luke 24, verse 47. Just one person, because we're not going to spend a lot of time there. But just to clarify what it is that Jesus sends these people to teach. Because this is Luke's account of virtually the same event. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Right. This is Jesus explaining to his disciples how he has fulfilled the scripture and what is going to come next. And he says that you guys will preach repentance, i.e. the law, and forgiveness of sins, the gospel, to all nations. By the way, this brings up an important question. When we're talking about the law here, we don't mean precisely the same thing as talking about human laws. Because you could read that and say, well, if we're supposed to preach repentance, does that mean we're supposed to preach um, uh, morality for the sake primarily of curbing good behavior and promoting, or curbing bad behavior and promoting good behavior? Basically doing the same thing that the state is trying to do. Are we trying to preach the law to people to get them to enforce on themselves a certain moral external order? No, because not, I mean, not primarily. The secular authority, like we said, is very much doing what we call the first use of the law, where God definitely does use the law to curb evil and promote good. That's the whole function of the state, to try to do that. When we're talking the law, we're talking more about the second use of the law. Do you remember what the second use is? Mirror, where it shows you your sins so that you recognize your need for grace and a savior. It's a preparation for the gospel, but it's primarily, law here again, is functionally the same about that which works repentance. The recognition that you're a sinner, the desire to turn from your sins and find some kind of salvation from them. That's the point of what we're, the primary point of what the church does with the law. We're not primarily interested in trying to enforce external good behavior. Now, of course, um, as we'll see, when we preach the law and gospel, people will and ought to and should be turned into the kinds of people who want to live a life in line with good external order. And when they don't, they're definitely sinning and need to be shown their sins once again, brought to repentance and faith in Christ. But that's simply not the primary aim of what the church is doing when it preaches repentance. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Well, it seems like the goal, I mean, I mean it, you know, you've got everlasting life. You know, God's laws are going to steer you toward everlasting life, but man-made laws are just going to Exactly. You have to think about the, the goals here. External order for life in this world is what the secular authorities are all about. And so um, the laws that they pass are geared explicitly towards life here today. An important thing. We're not trying to poo-poo the importance of this. This is very important. It's vital for our life together. But uh, the church has a bigger goal in mind, life for the world to come. And as we know, the gospel, 
which is the primary thing we're trying to preach. The whole reason we preach the law is to prepare for the gospel, the message that you are freely forgiven for the sake of Christ, that God has given you his grace, made you acceptable as a gift on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That excludes works of the law. Your works of the law, even if you could do that perfectly, isn't really going to help you because you don't earn your way into everlasting life. God brings you into it as a gift of grace through Christ. So the law cannot function in the same way as it functions over here in the secular authority. Here, it functions for achieving the goal of life in this world. If you can do the law well, you can live a good, solid life in this world, theoretically, right? If you can do the law well over here in the sense of maintain your, your behavior as well and your, even your thoughts and your desires, that doesn't bring you one step closer to eternal life. Not one step. Only the gospel brings you to eternal life. Or rather, it brings eternal life to you. Um, so it simply functions different. Make sense? And like Bill said, Keeping the different goals in mind is helpful for seeing that more clearly. Now, of course, we could also add to that, even though it's not in this particular set of verses, things like the Lord's Supper. After all, Jesus himself says about the Lord's Supper as he institutes this thing in the ends of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus gives us the his own body and his blood in the Lord's Supper. But for what purpose? We're not going to debate whether it's actually the body and blood of Christ. We're all Lutherans here. We're just going to assume that's what the scriptures say. But what's the purpose of giving it? Well, like they say, shed for you for the remission of sins. That is to say, the Lord's Supper is another tool that Jesus has given us, another means by which he exercises the authority that work brings us to these goals. So, means here, baptizing, teaching the word of God, and the Lord's Supper. Those are the primary means the church has at its disposal for carrying out its goal. That's the way that, and which is another way of saying, that's the way that Jesus as king rules over us to bring us to his goal of everlasting life. Fundamentally different than here. On the one hand, does this seem to imply that if you guys aren't obeying uh, what the pastor says, let's assume that I'm saying the truth about the word of God, and you guys aren't listening, it's time to break out my, my Glock and point it at your head and say, you better get on board with this or I'm going to terminate you. Or, for that matter, send you a letter in the mail saying, well, you sinned this much, Bill. Maybe you need to pay the church this amount of money as a fee to curb that kind of bad behavior in the future. You can almost see a certain rationality to it, right? But is that, does that sound like something the church is authorized to do? No. We don't have the sword. We don't have compulsory power where we can make you do these things. For one thing, um, as we'll get to here in a minute, the scope is the kind of scope of our authority makes that both impossible to actually accomplish. Even if I did those things to you, and we all agreed it would be a worthwhile thing to try, it wouldn't actually help accomplish our goals at all. Because what we're ruling over and what we're trying simply does not allow for those kinds of tools to actually work. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Well, let me say, let's move down to the scope here of uh, spiritual authority, because that'll clarify what I mean about how things like coercive force um, and human law and those kinds of laws and executing those laws in those ways is actually 
both incapable of producing the results and often will prove to be counterproductive to producing the proper results. Uh, because what is the scope of uh, spiritual authority? Now, first of all, remember when we're talking scope, we're talking two different things. Who is under the authority, first of all, and then uh, what are the limits of that authority? Let's talk about the who, because that'll be a very big deal. A couple of times ago, said very simply that uh, only those who are actually believers in Christ are under spiritual authority. That's true, but it's a little overly simplistic. Uh, because let's break this down a little bit. Who are we to apply the authority of Christ to? Uh, let me ask it this way. Who needs to hear the law and be shown their sins? Everybody. Everybody. In that sense, everybody is subject to the spiritual authority. Uh, the goal is to bring all people, like Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and do this to all nations. So in a very real sense, Everybody needs to have the spiritual authority encounter them. Its scope applies to everyone. And uh, one of the simple ways of saying this is a line from our catechism, uh, the explanation of our catechism that we ha learned in confirmation, but years ago, where it said, the law is to be preached to everybody, but especially to the impenitent sinners. That is to say, people who don't recognize their sin, don't think that they're sinful, don't see a need for Christ. So the law, at the very least, the word of God needs to be preached to everyone at the very least in the form of the law. Why? Well, on the one hand, Christ desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the first step in that happening is helping them see that they need Christ. The law is precisely there to show them their need for Christ. But ultimately, the, so it's to be proclaimed to everybody but ultimately, the beneficiaries of this kingdom, that is to say, the people who actually reap the benefits from it, are, in fact, only believers. Again, going back to the catechism where we say, the gospel is to be preached only to those who are penitents, who recognize their sin and their need for a savior. Why? Well, because if you don't think you need a savior, hearing that you have one is going to do you zero good. And as uh, Jesus, and this goes to things Jesus says frequently and often throughout the Gospels, and as the apostles themselves write frequently and often throughout the Gospels, it is those who believe in Jesus who will actually be saved. In fact, uh, let's turn to John chapter 3. This is a great summary of the whole point being made here. Verses 16 to 18. Somebody want to read that for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not, he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. All right, so what does it assert about those who, who actually will be saved? What is it about them that uh, it singles out as saying, these will be saved? Whoever what? Believes. Believes. Whoever has faith. Um, that is, whoever simply receives the gift that is Jesus. Those people will have the gift that is Jesus and everything it gives. But what does it say about those who refuse to believe? They will be condemned. Right. By the way, the spiritual authority will still be done to them 
it just won't be a benefit to them. It will, in fact, turn out to be a curse to them because they will reject the gift that is Jesus, and therefore they won't have the gift that is Jesus, which is life, grace, eternal salvation. So who this belongs to is believers. The beneficiaries are believers. But again, it's important to say the law will still apply one way or the other to everyone. Those who reject Christ are still under the accusatory power of the second use of the law. Christians are delivered from the accusatory power of the law because they're free from the condemnation by the forgiveness of their sins through Christ. Make sense? So in a very real sense, everyone is actually under the spiritual authority. It's just they're under it in different ways. Some are under it only with respect to the law and still need the law preached to them. Believers are under it with respect to the gospel. Make sense? But that, of course, brings us to the, uh, the big deal that what makes you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, uh, a very big ingredient here, is faith. And is faith a matter of your behavior? Is it something outside of you that I can police? It is not something I can police. I can hold, I can fine you till I'm blue in the face, and I might even have the full power of the government behind me that allows me to do this. This has been the case in some countries for a lot of history. For instance, if you were a heretic, you could be imprisoned, burned at the stake, unless you recanted of your errors. It's not to say they, that the heretics weren't actually an error. It's to say, would that actually result in faith in the heart of the person? I can compel you to make the external confession, yes, I believe. I can hold a gun up to your head, and at least some of the time, I'll get the result, I believe, don't shoot me, <laughs> right? But will I have done a single thing to the heart? Probably nothing good <laughs> to the heart. I will probably have simply uh, cooperated with the devil in hardening your heart against me as the kind of person who is willing to do this to you when you don't believe in the gospel, when you don't necessarily believe that you're a sinner, what are you going to see about the person who's threatening your life on this score? Well, you're probably not going to see them as a speaker of any kind of truth you're interested in. You cannot force internal motions and beliefs and uh, anything like that. And so external compulsion is, to say the least, of limited value. And more than that, it just in, and that's just speaking about psychology, uh, it's one of the reasons that, as a matter of principle, it's usually a good practice for earthly governments to try to avoid policing thoughts, beliefs, and emotions, simply because they can't. There's no way you can police thought crime. You can only police behaviors. You can try to encourage certain emotions and beliefs and feelings, but you can't compel them. It's outside of the ability. So much the more is true when we're talking about faith. Because if we're Christians, what do we believe about faith? Is it something we're even capable of generating for ourselves? It comes through the Holy Spirit. Right. It's something that only the Holy Spirit can work in us. As Jesus says in uh, John, in that last uh, night with the uh, disciples in his upper room, Without, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then a little later, he says, you did not choose me. I chose you all driving home this point that goes over and over again and is summarized very nicely in Ephesians 2, where Paul says, you were dead in your trans trespasses and sins. Can a corpse do anything to, save their, to change their state? <laughs> Presumably not. 
if we're spiritually dead, if we're dead with respect to our relationship toward God, there is nothing we can do internally to create faith. Therefore, there is so much less we can do externally to another person to force them to believe. Only the Holy Spirit can actually work repentance and faith. And how does the Holy Spirit choose to do that? Not with swords, not with guns, not with compulsions, fines, or anything like that, but by force of the law spoken to accuse and the gospel spoken to forgive. Make sense? This is why, again, it is impossible to use the means of the secular authority to affect the goals of the spiritual authority because it's simply outside of the ability of external force to create internal faith. And it's also probably more often than not counterproductive. Make sense? Let's move on to what limits we're talking about with the uh, scope of the spiritual authority. Well, uh, the scope of its authority, that is to say what it can and can't do, where it should say, okay, this is as far as I can go and no further, it is entirely limited by the means. The one job you might say that the church has the authority to carry out is the ministry. It's not to say pastors are the only thing in the church. It's to say the whole point of the church is ministering and therefore giving, sharing, and receiving baptism, word of God, and Lord's Supper. <coughs> That's the entire goal, purpose of the church. And of course, also to uh, encourage and strengthen um, the things that follow from that, like internal renewal and so forth. So the limits are set by the means and the goals, and we should not go further than those. Make sense? Pretty clear at this level, pretty straightforward. Now it's time to throw you a little bit of a curveball to uh, bear one point out that frankly, a lot of us have forgotten. A lot of Lutherans, a lot of Lutheran pastors have forgotten this little aspect to all of this, and which as we'll see next year, next uh, week, is actually very clearly stated in our own confessions. There is one other aspect to the limits. We're not, we don't simply mean, therefore, that all the, the church has the power to do is preach the word, administer sacraments, and so forth. That's the primary means, or that's the primary means, and that's the thing that sets the scope. But it raises immediate questions. If you're going to actually administer the word and the sacraments, um, if that's the whole goal of what you are, that's the limits and scope of your authority, it implies other things have to happen. Because if I'm preaching the word, am I just speaking in my closet to myself? No. What are some things that have to be happening for me to speak the word and make a disciple? You have to know it. Well, I have to know it, of course. I, I mean, if I don't know it, I'm not going to be very good at proclaiming it, right? So, of course, you want people who are prepared. But um, if I'm speaking to someone, I kind of need another person there to actually hear it. And if that person is actually going to hear it in any consistent way and grow in it themselves, because after all, teach doesn't just mean uh, when Jesus says teach them, speak it to them once, move on. Teach implies you make a disciple, someone who will cling to the word and grow in the word. And so the teaching will be an ongoing thing, right? As will the learning and the growing. Consistency of some form is implied and in fact is a necessary condition 
for teaching. There are things that have to be the case in order for these things to happen. That is, the church has to be able to internally regulate her life to some degree in order to set orders, habits, routines, and yes, even rules that allow these things to happen. Now, it's important to say scripture does not specify any specifics about what those rules, what those orders have to be. It leaves it free to the church. This is a very big part of the Lutheran confessions, as we'll see, especially next week. But there's just nowhere in the scripture where it lays out for all times and all places, okay, therefore you have to meet on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You have to have so many pews in your sanctuary. You have to use an organ, hymns, so on and so forth. None of that is in the scripture. It does not command any of it. But something like it has to be the case if you're gathering consistently to hear the word together, which, by the way, scriptures are very clear in some of the commands it lays out for this church to continue to gather, to encourage one another, to pray together, and above all, to receive things like the word and the sacraments. If you're going to share the Lord's Supper, you need people gathered in a place at a time and a place where those people can know it's happening, right? It just needs to be the case. We could pretend that's not true. I could just go out on my lawn at random times of the week and set up the table. Is anybody going to show up? <laughs> Maybe one of the members will happen to drive by and go, Oh, I guess he's doing the Lord's Supper. Let's get out there and do it. No, you need a regular time to do those things. And so the church has to be able to set certain rules and orders for the sake of actually getting the work that it needs to do carried out. And by the way, this isn't just a matter of necessity. This seems to be the assumed privilege of the church given to it by God, that it is free and authorized and required to regulate its internal life, regulate certain set times for meetings, and so on and so forth. For instance, let's just turn to 1 Timothy 5.9 is a good place to do this. And uh, yes, Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. All right, you want to go ahead and read 1 Timothy. 5 verse 9. Yep, it's a very short, and you might wonder, what does this have to do with anything? But we'll, we'll get it in a second. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60 and has been faithful to her husband. Okay, there's Paul writing to Pastor Timothy about the life of the congregation that uh, Timothy is set over to uh, oversee its life, make sure the word and sacraments are getting preached. For most of Timothy, it's a pretty straightforward affair of, Timothy, do this job, preach the word, do the sacraments, make sure you're doing that. But then in this uh, chapter 5, Paul moves into all kinds of rules that ought to be observed. And one of, and the, I picked this one because it's just such an obvious instance of a rule that God did not mandate for the church. He says, enroll widows on a list only under these circumstances. What's going on here? Well, uh, apparently the church had decided as a community, part of our renewed life together, which we know the spirit moves us to because it's faded forth in uh, the epistles time and again. It's just fundamental to the teaching of the love that Christ creates in our heart. By the way, that comes back to the law in the third use also applies in the church. That is to say, it becomes our guide to what we should want to do to serve God. Not a matter simply of external 
maintaining external behavior, but a matter of now that I trust God, I want to live to his glory. How do I do that? Well, let's look at the law and find out. Jesus talks about how once uh, you become his disciple, once you have the Holy Spirit, once you're forgiven, you'll want to love him. In fact, he commands it. Love one another the way I've loved you. And as they're, they're reflecting on this, they realize in our life together, we want to love one another. We just want to, to follow the way we know God designed us to work because we trust in God. How can we do it? Well, there's widows among us. Widows, by the way, are uh, unable to care for themselves by and large in certain circumstances. If they're elder, they can't work for themselves. They can't find a new husband. Their husband is dead. There's nobody to work. There's nobody to provide for. They might not even have kids or kids who are able to provide for them. What are we going to do? Well, if we're the church, if we love one another the way Christ is, we're going to make up a system to make sure these widows are taken care of. And so the congregation had already developed to enough where it actually had a roster of people who were on the list saying, these are the widows who need support from our offerings. And we're going to use our offerings to directly support the needs of these widows. Is that something the church has to do of all times and all places? Have this roster of widows and make sure you follow these guidelines about who you're going to let on this roster. No. No, it was something that was fitting for that time and place. And Paul gives a word of good advice about how to manage that roster that they put on. But it is a rule that the church enacts. And it even polices, not with force, but polices the boundaries of those rules to maintain its own internal life and its own internal renewal of taking care of one another. And Paul acts like, of course the church is free to do that. It's free to use the money that people have been giving for the support of the ministry to also support the life and welfare of its members who are in need as a way of showing Christian love. So there's a certain sense where the uh, church has the power and the authority, again, just to say this one more time directly, to enact internal rules which are to be followed by the members in that time and place. The church can change those things as circumstance deems best, but the idea is some things are helpful to do so that we can administer the word, the sacraments, and promote and encourage love amongst our members in this place. And we will set up these rules and we will follow these rules. Again, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 kind of gets at the same thing. Somebody want to read that for me really quickly. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Porpheus, you can skip the names if you want to. <laughs> they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay. So uh, notice here what's going on. The apostles, the people who are the ones directly commissioned by God in this case, to go and preach the good news and, uh, bring, and make disciples, they've been doing that. 
And as the church grows, people at, a little earlier in Acts gave them a lot of what they had so that this community could take care of its own members, support themselves, and uh, continue to minister more freely and effectively. But this also started to create some organizational problems in their communal life together. This is simply a fact of shared life together in the world. Physical needs start to come up of some kind or another. And you start to need to address those needs if we're going to have an ongoing relationship with each other, right? And so what does the church do? It says, our primary goal is preaching the word and doing ministry. And now all of these needs, which by the way, are real needs of our community that aren't just going to magically go away by saying, sorry, not our concern. We're going to preach. Let's forget about all this other stuff because all of this stuff flows out of their desire to worship together, to care for each other and so forth. They say, well, let's make certain arrangements. And by the way, notice who decides to make these arrangements. Does the Holy Spirit visit them and say, thus saith the Lord, I've had a vision, here's what we're supposed to do. No, they get together and they start saying, well, as we talked about this, here's what seems like a good idea to us as the apostles. What do you guys think as the congregation? And they propose, let's put these more, um, these affairs about managing the offerings, which are always going to be the case in the church because... That's just how you need to support the ministry somehow at the very least. And you need to support the ministers somehow. And you need to also support the people who have needs in the congregation. You're always going to have this issue of people giving offerings. Let's appoint people who are going to be able to manage that aspect of our shared life together. Even though it's not essential to our work, it's simply a condition that flows into it and flows out of it. We'll appoint these people to manage it. And then they all agree, let's appoint these people to manage it. And they create, by human authority, the office of deacons. People who are geared primarily towards managing the resources and serving the needs of the people. God doesn't create this office. They do as part and parcel to the one office that God creates in the church, which is the authority to baptize, to preach, to administer and share the supper. And by the way, while all this is going on, and this is a very important thing, while the church is going along and do this, and by the way, they've also clearly set up, now we have days where we're getting together. We have days where we're setting aside for the time of dispersing not only the alms, but also routine days we're gathering together to worship, to receive the sacraments. We even have, uh, in the earlier part of Acts chapter 3, a routine order of service we've started to do. There's a certain pattern we always follow when we do these things. All of that is not commanded in Scripture, but the church falls into doing it as a way of managing its own life together so that they can effectively do those things and live out the renewal that comes out of it. But what is going on while all this is happening? Read for us somebody. Go to Acts chapter 4, verse 17. Or verse 17 through uh, 18. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. All right. So at this point, the Sanhedrin, the religious governing authority, secular authority over... Um, they have some secular authority given to them by the governments of Rome, by the way, allowed to them to do this. They also serve as a spiritual authority, but clearly are going against that authority and exceeding their bounds by commanding them not to preach in the name of Jesus. 
But they also overtly uh, give a rule on their secular authority, don't preach and teach in the name of Jesus. Which would also, you would think, cover, therefore don't gather to worship Jesus, don't gather to share the sacraments, don't gather to teach about Jesus. If you can't teach or preach in the name of Jesus, you are also forbidden from doing all of these other things that flow out of it. What was the apostles' response to that? Ah, shucks, the government shut us down. All right, let's go home. (laughs) No, their response (coughs) is verse 19 of the same chapter. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. Verse 20, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The apostles, Peter and John, directly challenged the authority of the government to prohibit them from preaching and teaching in God's name. And by extension, they continue to insert to assert their own rules and orders for carrying out that, as though the government has no, the secular mandate against them has no authority to intrude on that either. And this, by the way, is the case for the entire early church up to the year 317, because in the or 312, because in that year is when the Edict of Milan came out from the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, who then officially allowed Christianity to be tolerated. For the first 300 years of the church's existence, the uh, church was not only on and off persecuted, but it was also on and off strictly illegal for Christians to worship, to teach, believe in Jesus, or for that matter, to gather and worship in his name. And what did Christians do under those mandates from the government? Well, they continued to meet according to their own internally decided places times and authorities in secret, though they had to, in catacombs so that the government can find them out in fields and forests where they couldn't get found. But they acted as though not only does the government have no right to prevent them from preaching, teaching, and administering the sacraments, but obviously, therefore, the government has no authority to intrude on their internally established rules for main, for doing those things that allow them to do those things in an orderly manner that allows them to happen where people can actually gather to hear, to receive, to take care of one another. And that second point is a really important one that a lot of Lutherans today have forgotten um, because, uh, and we'll talk about this more a lot next time. For instance, with the recent uh, COVID restriction, the only thing that was brought up largely was Here's what the government has ordered us to do. Therefore, we have to submit to them. And even though we we have to be able to preach the teach, we have to let them dictate how we do our worship, when we do our worship, and so on and so forth. Because we think we got confused into believing our authority was strictly the gospel, and therefore no amount of properly ordering our own life together was allowed to us. But in fact, the way the scriptures talk, the authority to order our own life together, to enact rules and uh, standards of discipline internal to us, is something that is also within the limits of the church's authority, and by the same token, outside of the limits of the secular government. And by the way, that hasn't only been the case in the Lutheran Church in America. The Lutheran Church in Germany, under the Nazi regime, had this same crisis, only on a much grander scale. They, Since the Nazis were, since the church government was functionally in charge of the church, they felt they had to obey everything that the government, the not, even when it became a Nazi government, said to them about how they have to order their life together, what kinds of worship <laughs> orders they can use, what kinds of times they can meet, what kinds of places they can meet, and so on and so forth. But that's not the way the Bible talks, and next time we'll see that is very definitively not the way the confessions talk. 
Well, next time we'll turn to the confessions. Any questions before we close for the day or thoughts about all that? So do you think, I mean, could, could we, since this COVID thing, you know, you broke that up just a little mm-hmm. bit. The, the governor said, you know, close everything down or whatever. Uh, uh, was our church obligated to do that? Could have we still held service? Well, here's, I mean, I'll, I'll get into this a lot more next week, but uh, especially as I've been studying all of this, interestingly for this Bible study, I, I'll say I was also on that confused version that I was uh, talking about for most of last year. And uh, personally, I've come to the conviction that I sinned grievously as a pastor against the congregation by, um, on the one hand, arranging things so that I was not even making it available for the congregation for at least a good month. I mean, we still did the drive-up communion, but not on a regular basis, that I was not making worship together available to you in some form, regular form, and allowing the government to intrude, so to speak, onto that. Now, the congregation also has the authority to, of its own, freely assent to what the government does for all kinds of reasons. But it's important to say that that is a, uh, something the congregation does freely out of uh, self-imposed deferral to the government and its orders and its recommendations. It's not something the government properly can or should Theologically, I'm not talking constitutionally. That's not even slightly in view here. Theologically, it has no power or authority to do. The church maintains authority over its own internal life. So the church could, and I don't fault the elders in this or the congregation in this. I want to be clear about that because you guys are exercising your very legitimate authority to say, we're going to freely submit to what the government says here out of our own decision that this is a valid, even uh, workable situation in our thing. But I, as a pastor whose called job is to continually provide the words and the sacraments to you, I feel that I sinned grievously against you guys. And not just feel, I am convinced from the scriptures I sinned grievously against you guys by not affording other ways for those who wished to receive the word in the sacraments to receive the word in the sacraments together. Does that make sense? But you did make it available. Made it available in a certain form. But uh, like I said, I think uh, what what gives a balm to my conscience is the fact that we had the drive-up communion. But I don't feel that uh, frees me from my obligation to at least have made it available to as many as wanted it. I feel that a pastor has the obligation to maximize the availability. Does that make sense? Even if the congregation, as a rule, chooses to try to um, limit how and when and does it for all kinds of different reasons, still, I should have been willing to say, granted, that's what the congregation does, but nonetheless, um, I feel I should make available for those who want to Heck, you can come gather out on my lawn on Sunday mornings and receive these things. At the time, we did what was everyone thought was correct. That's for sure. That's for sure. But uh, as, we'll, as we'll get into next uh, week a lot more, um, just because we, we, for, we pastors, and I, I say this pastors especially, and frankly also our district and synod, forgot certain key principles of our own confession of the scripture, Um, We were doing what we thought best, so we were acting in ignorance, but it doesn't mean it wasn't sinful. And I think we need to, as a synod, revisit this question much more 
conscientiously so that we don't make the same sinful mistake again in the future. Does that make sense? Now, again, I'm not saying we were wrong as a congregation to do what we did. I'm saying I was wrong as a pastor to not also make fully available word and sacraments to those who desired them. Anyway, let's uh, close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.